Well, I hope you picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes. Uh, We are actually nearing the end of our study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, I should conclude uh, this study uh, next week. Uh, This has been a study that's been right at about a year in length. And uh, today, we continue the message began last Sunday on how to offer acceptable worship to God. The last Sunday, we covered the first six verses in Hebrews 13. And this morning, we're going to examine verses 7 through 19. So let's begin with a brief review of Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6, which, uh, as you're looking at your notes, will take us through the first four points. The first four points in your sermon notes. All of that's review. So a review of Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. We notice at the close of Hebrews 12, uh, a command is given to offer God acceptable worship in light of the fact that believers have received a permanent relationship with God and an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, Verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful. Why? For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And how should we express that gratefulness? Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And so Hebrews 13 describes how to do that, how to offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. And the author of the book of Hebrews tells us the first way we express acceptable worship to God is to receive one another in brotherly love, to receive one another in brotherly love. Uh, Last week we looked at uh, verses 1 and 2, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Uh, We saw last week that that word translated love refers to brotherly love, uh, the heart of the word meaning to cherish or to be deeply devoted to one another. Uh, Christianity is not only about believing truth, but belonging to a family where we feel heartfelt affection towards one another, where we should look out for one another and care for one another. I demonstrate my gratefulness to God for loving me unconditionally by loving others. And God calls that acceptable worship. But also keep in mind, failure to love one another makes your worship unacceptable to God. First uh, John chapter 4 verses 20 and 21 reads, if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has, uh, who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The second point that we saw last week concerning acceptable worship, it involves to remember the persecuted. We are to remember the persecuted. Uh, Verse 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also also are in the body. And keep in mind the historical context, this church was under persecution. Uh, They had church members that were, had been imprisoned, that had uh, lost their property and their possessions, that uh, were beaten, uh, tortured. And so this was very applicable to uh, their situation. 
And uh, it's increasingly becoming applicable to our situation as well. But I think it applies to any who would be in adversity or suffering. So since the church is one body with the individual members intricately connected to one another, just like the members of our physical body, when one member suffers, we all suffer. That's what the writer is saying. Therefore, we are to rush to the aid of the suffering member to bring them comfort, to bring them encouragement. And God calls that acceptable worship. You know, many of us were just lifting up our hands in worship to God as we sang those songs of praise. And that's wonderful. It's beautiful. But realize, God says that's unacceptable if you're not also, what, extending those hands out to help those who would be in need. The third uh, truth that we saw concerning acceptable worship last Sunday was we are to respect marriage. We're to respect marriage in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Uh, We saw the word translated honor would be better translated precious. Marriage is to be treasured. It is to be respected highly valued as a God-ordained sacred institution which God defined as a lifelong commitment and sexual union between one man and one woman. And sexual intimacy we see here is exclusively reserved as God's gift to a married couple for their mutual pleasure in order to nourish their love and to build a family through the bearing of children. Having sex with anyone who is not your marriage partner is an abuse of God's gift, an affront to God's holiness, and will incur God's judgment. But the beautiful truth is this. When a couple, you married couples, listen to this now. When When a married couple, when they maintain their commitment to one another, even when it is most difficult to maintain that commitment. Though when you hit those times when the marriage is sort of sours, and you're really not liking one another at the time, but in those difficult times, when you maintain that commitment, God calls that acceptable worship. And when a couple enjoys the pleasure of sexual intimacy as God intended when he created that for a married couple, God says that is good. That is acceptable worship. And then the fourth and the final truth that we saw last Sunday was that acceptable worship is to rest in God, to trust in God. Hebrews 12 verses 5 and 6 says, Let your character Be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The point is simply this. If God will never desert me, If God will never forsake me, if God truly is my helper, I do not need to crave money as the source 
of my security and happiness, and I do not need to fear what man can do to me. Now, this does not mean, if I trust God, that I'm going to be uh, wealthy. It does not even mean that I will be free uh, from financial stress and pressure. And it certainly doesn't mean that I will never suffer at the hands of others. But God will be there for me to be my helper, to use that struggle, that adversity, to work for my spiritual good, and to learn to be content with God in any and all circumstances, to be able to say, for me, God alone is enough. That is one of the highest expressions of acceptable worship because it demonstrates faith in God and in His promises. Now we want to move into our new verses for today, verses uh, 7 through uh, 19. And the fifth way the uh, author of the book of Hebrews says we express acceptable worship is found in verses 7 through 10, and that is to remain steadfast in God's Word. The fifth way we demonstrate acceptable worship to God, according to the author of Hebrews, is to remain steadfast in God's Word. In verse 7, we find an exhortation contrasted by a warning in verse 9 with one of the most well-known statements in the Bible connecting the two, which is verse 8. So notice first the contrast between the exhortation in verse 7 and the warning in verse 9. In the exhortation, he begins by saying, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And then notice how that's contrasted by the warning in verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. So there's the exhortation. You remember those who led you, that God appointed over you to give you instruction in the Word of God. And the thought, of course, is remain anchored in that truth. Remain founded, uh, steadfast in that truth. And don't be carried away by various and strange uh, teachings, false teachings. And then he moves from there and he contrasts the fruit of the lives of their teachers of the word against the false teachers. Notice he says in verse 7, and considering the result of their conduct. In other words, he says, you can look at those who gave you instruction in the Word of God, and you can see the fruit of their lives. You can see what the Word of God produced in and through them. But when you look at those false teachers, look at the contrast in verse 9, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. He says there's no benefit in false teaching. It will not aid you. You need to stay steadfast in the Word of God because that's what produces fruit and change in your life. And then going back to the exhortation in verse 7, he says, imitate their faith. Imitate the faith of your leaders who trusted God's Word and demonstrated that trust through obedience. On the other side, he says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food. In other words, the false teachers were apparently saying it's through all these regulations and these rituals that you find God's love, you find God's grace and and forgiveness. And no, it's not through works, it's what? By faith. Now, how does verse 8 relate to verses 7 and 9? Verse 8, the very familiar statement, Jesus Christ, you know it, is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice the next statement in your notes. The Word of God 
preached and lived out by their leaders in verse 7 is summed up in the confessional statement of verse 8 concerning the unchangeableness of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is now being threatened by the erroneous teaching mentioned in verse 9. Let me just repeat that. See, the Word of God preached and lived out by their leaders that he talked about in verse 7, it is summed up in the confessional statement in verse 8, which concerns the unchangeableness of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which now is being threatened by the erroneous teaching mentioned in verse 9. And here's the point. Preachers may change, but the preaching of Jesus Christ must remain the same which provides the only base, basis for faith yesterday, today, and forever. Preachers change, but the preaching of God's Word must remain the same because that is the only basis for faith. Now, what is the relationship between the Word of God and acceptable worship? Well, it's everything. The very essence, listen now, let me, this is the simplest definition I can give you of worship. It's simply our loving response to God's revelation of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. That's, that's what worship is. It's our loving response to God's revelation of who Jesus is and what He did for us. Well, folks, where do we discover who Jesus is? Where do we discover what Jesus did for us? Well, it's in the Word of God. It's through the Word of God that the eyes of our hearts are open to see Jesus, the eternal Son of God who came to this earth as a man. We see Him there in the Bible live a sinless life, suffer and die on the cross for our sinful lives, and then rise from the dead to empower us to live holy lives. When a person's eyes are illuminated through the Word of God to see Jesus as Savior and Lord as He illuminated my eyes 45 years ago, that person suddenly realizes Jesus is worthy of my worship. He's worthy of the surrender of my life, all that I am, all that I possess. And the most fundamental way to express worship is to obey His commandments. Out of a heart filled with gratitude for who Jesus is and what He did for me. Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them or obeys them, He it is who loves me. The flip side of this is found in Matthew 15, 8 and 9 where Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain they worship me. So God is saying acceptable worship is not just giving me lip service. It's embracing my word and obeying that word. Let me give you just a beautiful uh, example of how we should come to corporate worship every Sunday. If you would take your Bibles, this is not in your sermon notes. Turn over to the book of Nehemiah just for a moment. Book of Nehemiah and chapter 8. And... Uh, just going to have to touch on this very, very briefly, uh, but this is a, a precious portion of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, it's known as the revival at the Watergate. Uh, remember, the book of Nehemiah is all about uh, restoring Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls, 
and uh, how God used uh, Nehemiah uh, to lead the people to do that. And during that time, Ezra uh, was the great man of God, the great uh, scribe uh, that taught people God's Word. And we see a beautiful example of how we should come to corporate worship each Sunday right here. And, uh, and, and how we should view God's Word, how we should respect uh, God's Word. And notice the first thing that you see in verse 1 is how the people came enthusiastically. And we should come with enthusiasm every Sunday because we know we're going to hear the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. Notice verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Given to Israel. Notice, who initiated this? It was the people. It was not the leadership. It was not Ezra. No, the people, they come to Ezra. And they say, Ezra, teach us the word of God. This was a people that were enthused. They were excited. And that's how we should come every Sunday, knowing the word of God is going to be taught, knowing the word of God is going to be preached, that God's going to have a word for us that I can apply that will make a difference in my life in drawing me closer to God, making me more like Jesus and accomplishing the purposes he has for me. So there should be that excitement, that enthusiasm. I'm, I'm sort of like the edge of my pew, wanting to hear what God has for me that morning. But not only were they enthusiastic, notice how attentive they were. Look at verse 3. And he said, and he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand and all the people, notice, were attentive to the book of the law. That's amazing. You know what they're talking about here? You know what he would have read? The Pentateuch. The first five books of the Old Testament. That's why it says he began reading early in the morning. And it took him several hours into the midday to complete it. And the people were attentive. They were attentive because they knew this was God's Word being spoken to them. And their obedience to that Word would bring blessing to them. So we should come enthusiastically. We should come very attentive, not making sure that we're not distracted. You know, I think it's so important when you come to a worship service that we, we all have burdens. We all have struggles we're dealing with. You need to lay those aside. You need to recognize when we come here, we're not only in God's presence, but the Word of God is going to be taught, is going to be preached. And this is God's revelation to us. And so we should respect it by not only coming enthusiastically, but attentive. So we drown out. We, we turn away from all the other distractions that during these minutes, we can give God's Word our undivided attention. And then notice in verse 6 that they were submissive to God's Word. It says in verse 6, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That word worshipped in the Hebrew text is the word shakah, and it, and it literally means to be submissive, to submit to, and that's exactly what they were doing. As they heard God's word, they lifted up their hands, they put their knees to the ground, they bowed down, acknowledging we are submitting to what 
we have heard. What saith my Lord to his servant? In other words, there was that commitment to obey. And then notice in verses 7 and 8, they were teachable. It mentions uh, these priests that were gathered to help in the teaching. And then look at the latter part of verse 7. It says, they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And that's my purpose, to bring interpretation, to bring understanding of God's Word and its application to our lives. So that's how we should come to a Sunday morning worship service. You should come enthusiastically. You should come attentive, turning away from all other distractions to give God your undivided attention, to give His Word your undivided attention, and then to be submissive to this Word, coming already with an attitude that I'm I'm here to obey. I'm here to respond. I'm here to please God. I'm here to be teachable. And then if we do that, folks, the same thing that happened in Nehemiah 8 happened here. A revival broke out. We don't have time to look at it, but a great revival broke out as a result of the people giving that kind of respect to the Word of God. So one of the easiest ways to determine whether God finds your worship acceptable or unacceptable is how you respond to the teaching and preaching of God's Word. And that's why... I've emphasized hundreds of times from this pulpit. Hearing a message has never changed the first person. It's what you do with the message. That's one of the reasons I supply the sermon notes. To give you something to take with you, to reflect on, to determine where has God spoken to me? What can I apply? What do I need to apply and appropriate in my life? I mean... Was there something I learned about God this morning I just need to praise Him for? Is there a sin I need to confess? Did I see some promise I need to claim? Was there guidance that I received? Is there some action that I need to take related to another person or a situation? And then that's how we grow as we step out and obey God's Word. Look at the next way that we express acceptable worship to God, and that's as we rejoice at the altar of the cross, as we rejoice at the altar of the cross. And the writers, we're going to see, mentions three ways uh, we do that. And the first way is by feasting on Christ's grace. By feasting on Christ's grace. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. It says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now I know some of that language is uh, difficult to understand. Remember these are Hebrew believers uh, that had a uh, long background with uh, Jewish worship and with the temple and the sacrificial system. But let me see if I can break this down because it reveals an absolutely wonderful, beautiful truth. When the writer says, we have an altar, we as believers have an altar, he is referring to the cross where Jesus sacrificed his life for our sins to secure for us salvation. Now, it is important to connect this verse, verse 10, with verse 9. Go back to verse 9 where we read, it is good 
for the heart to be strengthened by, remember what the writer said? To be strengthened by what? Grace. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, he says, not foods. See, apparently the false teaching being confronted by the church emphasized that a person earned God's favor by observing various religious regulations and rituals. The writer, in essence, is saying, no, the heart is not strengthened by works, but by God's grace. You don't earn God's favor by works. It's through grace and through grace alone by God's mercy. Now, in verse 10, we are being told how to be strengthened by grace. And what he's basically saying is we come to the altars, we come to the cross of Christ. That is where we find our spiritual food. That is where we find nourishment. It's not by observing religious regulations or rituals, but from the grace and the forgiveness we receive at the cross, the altar of Christ. That's what's being said. And this is so applicable to our lives today because as believers, we do have ups and downs. Some of you may be very discouraged this morning, and you know you have failed God, and you have fallen into error, you've fallen into sin. Well, how do you, how do you get back? You feast on His grace. You humble yourself, and you come to the cross to know God's forgiveness, to know God's grace as you confess your sin, as you forsake it, and you turn to His love. And also notice the emphasis that Jesus' sacrifice took place outside the gate. You say, what in the world is all that about? This emphasis about the sacrifice being outside the camp, outside the gate. And listen, hold on, folks, because this is wonderful. Here the writer uses a very Hebrew argument uh, to make his point. Uh, what he's actually alluding to in verse 11 is the Day of Atonement. And many of you are familiar with the Day of Atonement. It was a, a one day a year. Uh, where a sacrificial lamb uh, would be slain and the high priest would take the blood of that lamb into the Holy of Holies and to cover the sins uh, of the people. Well, he alludes to the lamb here that was slain on the Day of Atonement, which, of course, was what? A prophetic type of the sacrifice of Christ. That's what it was pointing to when Jesus would come, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. And then after slaying the Lamb, here's the key point, after slaying the Lamb on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, as I mentioned, he would take the blood of that Lamb into the Holy of Holies to cover the sins of the people, but the body of the Lamb was taken outside the camp to be burned, to be burned in like manner. In like manner, the ultimate atoning lamb was sacrificed outside Jerusalem's walls on Golgotha as an offering to God for sin. That's the whole point of verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, this has two great meanings. Number one, everyone who remains committed to the old Jewish system they are excluded from the benefit of partaking in Christ's atoning sacrifice. Not because God excludes them, it's because they're excluded due to their unbelief. 
Because that day of atonement and everything about that old Jewish system was meant to point them to what? To Jesus. To bring them to Jesus. So when he says in verse 10 that from, uh, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, he's alluding to those that are still in the old Jewish system of worship. And he says, because they have failed to see Jesus, they have no right. They have no opportunity to, well, they have the opportunity, but they're refusing to believe in what God has provided for them. But here's the second and the most beautiful thing. Jesus' death, don't miss this, outside the camp means His grace and forgiveness is accessible to anyone in the world who will come to Him through faith. Jesus planted His cross in the world, so all the world would have access to Him. For God so loved, what? The world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? What a beautiful truth. What a beautiful truth. So now Christ is accessible to every single person on planet earth that will come to him through faith and put their confidence in him. Look at the second way that we rejoice in the altar of the cross by bearing Christ's reproach. By bearing Christ's reproach. Look at verses 13 and 14. Hence, let us now go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. In other words, what this is saying is, as we come to the cross to feast on that grace, to know God's forgiveness, to be restored to God, to know a relationship with Him. Now, we're to follow Jesus. And like Jesus went into the world to save humanity, we are to go into the world, bearing His reproach, to be witnesses, to say, let let me show you a great cross-reference. Turn over to uh, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Because here's the point. We're talking about acceptable worship. Hebrews 10, look at verse 19. Let me begin reading verses 19 through 22. It says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. The point I'm wanting to make, the author is saying... Because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, you and I now have boldness. We have the confidence to walk right into the Holy Holy, 724, around the clock. Remember, in the Old Testament system, only one person could go into the Holy Holies, and he only went one time a year, and that was what? The high priest on the Day of Atonement. Today, we have perpetual access to God's presence through the blood of Jesus Christ to find mercy, to find grace, to find help in our time of need. And that is the essence of worship. Through the blood, coming into His presence, making our praises known, surrendering our lives to follow Him. So, through the blood, we draw near, but now going back to Hebrews 13, now we have to, after going in, we have to what? Go out. Go out, out and, and listen to me, folks. 
one of the greatest proofs that your worship is authentic is that you are going outside the four walls of this church to make Jesus Christ known to others. That is the mission that God has given us as His people. And I don't believe anyone can claim that they're experiencing true, acceptable worship if they have no concern for a lost world. And if they're unwilling to invest themselves in reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, as I come into the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus Christ, what should happen in true worship? I mean, what's the proof of the pudding? It's a changed life. I mean, worship is seeing Jesus as He is. And as I praise Him, and as I submit to Him, and as I obey Him, as I know the power of the Spirit working in me, I become more and more like Him. And as I become more like Jesus, I develop His heart, His love for a lost world. I understand what my mission is as a believer, that I'm to be a witness. And so the proof that we've truly gone in and worshipped in authenticity is that then we go out to a lost world to make Him known to others. So... How do we rejoice in the altar of cross? cross? By first, feasting on Christ's grace and forgiveness. Second, by bearing Christ's reproach, by bearing that cross, being a witness, uh, regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequences. And then the last thing, notice, by offering sacrifices of praise in word and in deed. By offering sacrifices of praise in word and in deed. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. It says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So we offer sacrifices of praise in word, but also in deed. In other words, we all need to have a little bit of Mary in us and a little bit of Martha in us. You know what I mean? We need, remember Mary? Mary probably was the first person, Mary of Bethany, uh, the sister of Martha uh, and Lazarus. She was probably the first person that, that had her eyes open and realized the reason for which Jesus came to this earth. And right before his crucifixion, she, she understood. He came to lay down his life for the penalty of our sin, and rise again to bring salvation. And when her eyes were open to see that, she said, goodness gracious, i got to do something to show my love. i got to praise Him. I can't be still. I can't be silent. So she gets her most valuable possession, an alabaster vial of perfume. She takes it in. Jesus is eating with His disciples. She breaks that vial, pours every drop on Jesus, and the most extravagant act of worship found in the Bible. And you remember the reaction of the disciples. They're looking at this, and they get angry at Mary. They say, what in the world are you doing? And they actually use these words. Mary, why that waste? Why that waste? That could have been sold, and that money could have been used to minister to the poor. And as they're scolding her, they're all over it. Suddenly, Jesus turns on his own men, and he said, men, leave this woman alone, because I tell you, What she's done to me. She has anointed me prior to my 
death prior to my burial. And what she's done will be spoken of in remembrance of her wherever the gospel is preached for all time. And you cannot miss what Jesus was saying in that statement. He was giving his men a lesson. He said, men, look at her because she gets it. Men, that is what the gospel produces. When a person's eyes are open like Mary's to see who I am and what I've come to do for them, and for us what he has done for us, they suddenly realize no gift could ever be too extravagant, no sacrifice too great. And now I just want to live the rest of my life looking for creative ways to show my love, to express my praise, my adoration, my worship. But then we need to balance that with Martha. And you know Martha, the one that was busy with her many tasks, serving the Lord. There needs to be that balance of devotion, of intimacy, of warmth and closeness, but then getting our hands dirty in ministry and service to others. And God sees both of those as acceptable forms of worship when they're done with a motive to what? Please Him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do as what? Unto the Lord. Unto the Lord. You don't do it for the applause of people. You don't get, do it for the affirmation to get the affirmation from others. You do it for Him. Because he's worthy of that whether anyone notices or not. And that also gives me an opportunity to once again remind you, love indeed. October 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th gives us a wonderful opportunity to show our praise to God through practical gifts of service and good deeds. Look at the last way that he mentions as we close. Last way he mentions that we express acceptable worship to him, and that is to revere your church leaders, to revere your church leaders. And he mentions basically four ways we do that. First, he says, remember their teaching. First way you revere your church leaders is by remembering their teaching. Verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And that is the primary role of a church leader, to feed the church family with the word of God, to protect you against false teaching, and to lead the church to accomplish the mission that God has given us to do. So he says, God has appointed those leaders over you, and as they stay true to God's word, men of integrity, say, you remember them. You remember their teaching. You remain committed to their teaching. You submit to their, that teaching. You let that teaching change you because it's not their teaching. It's the word of God. They're just the instrument. And any leader worth his salt would say, go, God, may they forget the messenger seeing only the master. You know, may I decrease and you increase. Notice the second way we revere our church leaders. He says to imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. In other words, the idea is not to become like them in their personality and their temperament and their giftings and the way they carry themselves. But he says, look deeper. What, what, what's making these guys tick is their faith in God. That is what I want you to imitate. Placing your confidence, placing your trust in God, that God can use you, that God has a purpose, that God has a plan, and you imitate their faith. And then the third way, he says, follow their lead. 
Follow, follow their lead. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. That word grief is a very interesting one, by the way, in the New Testament Greek. It means uh, uh, almost an unexpressible groaning. In other words, don't make your leaders groan. Uh, bring them joy as, uh, as you uh, as they see you submit uh, to the teaching of God's word and your word blossom in, in growth uh, in, in, in the Lord. And, uh, and then he says, for this would be what? Unprofitable for you. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, he's just simply saying, I mean, of course, you don't blindly follow any man if he's not staying true to the Word of God. You know, how many times have I stated from this pulpit, whether it's we're talking about government or whether we're talking about any leader in any realm, there's no authority that's not delegated authority from God. And if that authority is delegated, then that authority is responsible to stay true to God's Word, and especially within the realm of the church. So, yes, you need to look at my life. You need to look at the other leaders. You need to make sure we stay true to the Word of God, that our character stays true uh, in terms of being an example of faith, being an example of hope and love. Uh, but as we do that, then there needs to be that commitment to follow the lead of the leaders, recognizing that one day I, along with the other elders, will stand before God and we will give an account of how we led this church, how we watched over your souls, how we taught the Word of God. We bear great responsibility and we stand in the position to incur greater discipline if we fail to administer what God has called us to do. And then look at the uh, fourth way. Pray for their integrity. Pray for your leaders. Uh, Hebrews 13, verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, the writer says, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. So pray for their inte integrity, because you can't lead without integrity. No one's going to be able, willing to follow you without integrity. You can't influence people without integrity. So he says, one of the aspects of acceptable worship is to revere your church leaders, to remember their teaching, imitate their faith, follow their lead, pray for their integrity. Now I have to come back like I've done on every other point, what can possibly make your worship unacceptable to God? If you're not showing respect to your church leaders, if you're not heeding their teaching, if you're not looking to imitate their faith, follow their lead, and pray for their integrity. So he says that is an integral part of worship. And let me just give you a cross-reference. I think that just, just beautifully expresses uh, the heart of what the writer is saying here in just one passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you want to get this down in your notes. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing along the same lines. And this is what he says. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. There's a thought. Appreciate your leaders. Respect them. And then he says, and those who have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So again, you cannot give a God acceptable worship unless you show respect 
to those God has appointed uh, over you to lead you. So a very practical lesson uh, from Hebrews 13 on how to offer acceptable worship to God. Now, I don't believe that this is like a complete uh, work on uh, all that worship is. It's very obvious that the writer is hitting some points that were pertinent to that church uh, that he was writing to, almost like little bullet points. And it's very obvious he wasn't teaching them anything new. He was reminding them of truth that they had already been taught to follow through on that truth. And I trust that we'll do the same thing this day. Father, uh, thank you again for the truth of your word concerning acceptable worship. And I trust it's opened our eyes to see that worship has much, much more uh, than uh, to do with than just uh, singing uh, praises, or, uh, or even in prayer, uh, praising you. Uh, Father, worship uh, is in many ways a very practical thing as we've seen. It, it involves loving one another. It involves honoring marriage, honoring our leaders, uh, feasting on your grace as we come to the uh, cross to know your uh, forgiveness. And we could just go on and on. So, Lord, give us grace uh, to bring you acceptable worship. Uh, that we would honor you in all things, which in Christ's name we do pray, amen.